for that beautiful music. Good morning. It is good to see all of your smiling faces and praise God for the beautiful weather. Amen? And it's a privilege to be here together, a privilege to celebrate communion and think about the life and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And I am grateful to be upright and breathing. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads as we get into the Word of God. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the privilege of life. Thank you for the privilege of being gathered here together. And Lord, I know that each person here has come from a different set of circumstances this past week. Lord, there's been highs, there's been lows, but Lord, we come all seeking one thing, and that is your honor and glory. Father, we want to understand and grasp Scripture, and and Lord, before we wash each other's feet, before we partake of the emblems of communion, Lord, we want to spend some time in your book, the Word of God, and I pray that you would guide our study, that you would be with us, that you would come into our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Every year in Alaska, and some of you perhaps have heard of this race, there is a 1,000-mile dog sled race named the Iditarod. Iditarod. And it's run, notice this, for prize money and prestige, prestige. But did you know that this race commemorates an original race that was run back in 1926 to save hundreds of lives. In 1926, January, six-year-old Richard, a young boy, showed symptoms of a disease called diphtheria. It signaled the possibility of an outbreak of this deadly disease in the small town of Nome. Well, unfortunately, the six-year-old boy passed away just a day later. The doctor in the town, Dr. Welch, immediately began treating the children and adults with an experimental but effective anti-drug, diphtheria drug, called serum. But it wasn't long before Dr. Welch's supply ran out, and the nearest supply was 1,000 miles away in a small Alaska town called Nenana, Alaska, 1,000 miles of frozen wilderness away. What was to be done? Well, amazingly, a group of trappers and prospectors volunteered to cover that 1,000-mile distance with their dog sled teams, operating in relays from trading post to trapping station and beyond. One sled started out from Nome, the other from Nenana, and that's where they had the treatment, hoping to meet in the middle and then go on to Nome. Facing frostbite, fatigue, and exhaustion, the Teamsters mushed relentlessly until after 144 hours in minus 50 degree chilling winds. Finally, the serum was delivered to Nome, Alaska, and as a result, only one other person lost their life to the potential outbreak. Their sacrifice... Those trappers' sacrifice gave that entire town the gift of life. And the question that I have is, why did they do it? 
Why would they face death? Why would they face frostbite, fatigue, and exhaustion? Why would they make that sacrifice? Because simply they wanted to save lives. Lives were more valuable to them than the risk involved. The end goal was worth whatever they needed to give up. Sacrifice. The dictionary defines sacrifice as the surrender or destruction of something prized or desirable for the sake of something considered as having a higher or more pressing claim. Giving up one thing that you love because there's something that either you love more or it's more valuable and important. Surrendering one thing for the sake of something else. And friends, we could talk about the sacrifices that we have made in our lives. We could talk about the sacrifice of sending our children to Christian education. We could talk about the sacrifice of working long hours just to pay the bills and put food on the table. We could talk about the sacrifice that perhaps our parents or grandparents made in coming to maybe this country. But my friends, at the end of the day, one sacrifice trumps the rest. And that sacrifice is the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus, as the definition goes, was willing to surrender or even destroy something prized or desirable. He was willing to surrender his life for the sake of a higher claim. Jesus was willing to give up his life so that you and I could live. Jesus was willing to give up heaven so that you and I could spend eternity with him. And as I think about sacrifice, as I think about that word, as I think about my own life, I can't help but think that living in 21st century America with the comforts of a modern home and a reliable car that Jeff Harper really doesn't understand sacrifice. I can't help but think that us here in this beautiful sanctuary with nice air conditioning don't truly understand sacrifice. What does sacrifice really mean? We want to take a stab at answering that question. We want to take a look at sacrifice today. And so we want to begin in the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. Luke chapter 21. New Testament. If you did not bring your own Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And Jesus looked up and saw the who? The rich, putting their gifts into the where? The treasury. Verse 2, Jesus also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Verse 3, so Jesus said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Jesus is here 
in the temple, not far away from the treasury box. Noticing as all of the rich, all of the Jews, uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes are passing by, putting their money in, here comes this widow dropping her two mites. Now, to understand this story in the context of Luke, I want to look at what is both before this story and what is after this story. If you look in Luke 21, you'll notice that directly after the story of the widow's two mites, we have Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple, and then Jesus shares with his disciple the signs of the times. Sounds like a magazine that Adventists put out. Signs of the time, signs of the end of the age. When Jesus comes, what's going to be happening in our world today? And it's fascinating to me that in each account of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, at least those three, that the story of the widow's mites took place directly before Jesus shares signs of the times. And I can't help but think that because we're living in the last days, that if there was a story that perhaps we needed to understand a bit more better. Maybe it was the one about sacrifice. That's what takes place after the widow's two mites. But what about before? If you look in Luke 20, verse 45 through 47, notice what the Bible says. Then in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 46, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in their long robes. They love the greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at all the feasts. Verse 47, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Mm. Jesus was frustrated with the Pharisees. Why was he frustrated? Desire of Ages says that Jesus was frustrated with the Pharisees because the common people were confused. Here was this Jesus, this Savior that they had grown to love and know. This one that was healing people, that was teaching simply and also straightforward. The Jesus that they had come to know and love also was hated by the very people that they had grown up respecting their entire life. How could it be in the people's minds that here is Jesus, who could not love Jesus? And here's the Pharisees, the scribes, that hate Him so much, and yet we grew up learning to give our complete obedience to everything the Pharisees said. Something is wrong in the people's minds. There's a disconnect. And Jesus realized that he needed to take the opportunity to do some straight talking. Parents, have there been a time where you had to do some straight talking? You had to sit your boy or girl down, put on the pants, so to speak, and say, all right, we got to straighten things up a little bit. And here Jesus needs to give some straight talk. He needs to tell it as it is. And so He shares in verse 46 and 47, listen, beware of the Pharisees. And if you want to look at a more in-detail explanation of what Jesus says, and we won't do that now, but you can write down Matthew 23. 
In Matthew 23, Jesus gives the seven, eight, nine woes to the Pharisees. Have you read those before? Woe to the Pharisees. In one place, he calls them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look great, but on the inside, they're dirty. Beautiful on the outside to man's eyes, but ugly on the inside. And Jesus says, you know what? I want the opposite. I don't care what the outside looks like. I want the inside to be beautiful. And the thing is, is that beautiful insides make beautiful outsides. Amen? The world has it switched the other way around. And so here Jesus, in frustration with the Pharisees, lays it out. And while he's watching these Pharisees come into the temple with their long robes, taking their money back, excuse me here, let me grab my huge money bag from the side of my pocket, and dumping it into the treasure. Ooh, those coins sound nice against the metal. As he's watching these rich Jews pour in this money to the treasury, he sees an individual that Desire of Ages says brings a smile to his face. Here is someone that contrasts the attitude of the Pharisees. And Jesus, who says things it seems perfectly all the time, sizes up the situation and says, here is an object lesson. And so in Luke 21, verse 1, it says Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And verse 2 says, and he also saw a certain poor widow. I believe that Luke here purposefully contrasts these two individuals. You have the rich who unfortunately did not have rich hearts. Their outward giving did not match what was taking place on the inside. Because friends, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how much you give or don't give. You can have those that have all the money in the world that are giving from a heart of love and pouring money into God's house. And they have beautiful hearts. And God says, praise God. And then you have those like the widow who all they had for the week was a couple of mites. And Jesus here contrasts those two. The word poor, if you look in verse 2, he saw also a certain poor widow. That word poor, uh, the Greek definition of that word, it comes from a word that means literally living from hand to mouth. She lived a hand to mouth existence. She struggled to put food on the table. And so you can imagine, here is Jesus, seeing this woman that is dirt poor. I mean, she's got nothing. We're not talking about like, well, you know, I really got to make the budget a little tighter this week, like many of us have gone through. We're talking about, uh, man, can I even put food on my table today? Can I even eat this week? This is where she is at. So you can imagine that he's frustrated with these religious leaders who talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. And I imagine that Jesus' frustration is similar to this religious philosopher. Notice what Soren Kierkegaard says. He wrote once, I went into church. I sat on the velvet pew. I watched as the sun came shining through the beautiful stained glass windows. The minister dressed in a velvet robe opened the golden gilded Bible marked with a silk bookmark and said, if any man will be my disciple, said Jesus, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, sell what he has, give to the poor, and follow me. Do you see the contrast? He's seen with his eyes this beautiful church with a velvet, you know, uh, seats, and here's this minister with a beautiful robe and this beautiful gold-gilded Bible. But what he's reading doesn't match what he's seen with his eyes. And I believe that Jesus had that same frustration with the Pharisees. And so to his delight, back to Luke 21, verse 2, he sees this widow come along, putting in just two mites. Now, I've always heard and I've always thought that she gave just a couple of pennies. And in fact, if you equated that today, what she gave to today's um, uh, currency, it was more like a few dollars. So essentially, two mites equaled a farthing, and 64 farthings equaled a denarius, which was a day's wages. So let's say that someone makes today $10 an hour, they work eight hours, $80 for the day, and you divide that up a certain amount, similar to here, and you get a few dollars that she's giving here. And at first, I think, well, I mean, come on, who doesn't have a few dollars to give? Who can't pull out just a little bit? But notice what Jesus says about this woman. Notice what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says about this woman in verse 3, So Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than everyone else. Verse 4, For all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. My friends, she did not just put in a couple dollars. Well, that didn't hurt much. She gave her week or month's savings for the sake of the church. Notice what uh, Desire of Ages, page 615 says, the poor widow gave her living to do the little that she did. She deprived herself of Notice the sentence, she deprived herself of food in order to give those two mites to the cause she loved, and she did it in faith, believing that her heavenly Father would not overlook her great need. It was this unselfish spirit and childlike faith that won the Savior's recognition. Wow. I had not thought of that before, that when the Bible says in verse 4 that she gave her livelihood, we're talking about she gave her life savings. Can you imagine taking all of the money that you own? all of the money in the bank, selling all the cars you have, selling the houses you have, and saying, God, I give it to you. She gave her entire livelihood. You know, I have, in my short 28 years of existence on planet Earth, I've always had food on the table. I can always open the cupboard Make some spaghetti, open a can of beans, look in the refrigerator, find some food. And here this woman is, is giving up food, sustenance, what gives her life because she wanted to communicate to God that she loves the things that God loves. She wanted to communicate to God that the things that God appreciates are the things that she appreciates. She wanted to show out of her heart of love that 
that she could do something for God. And I can imagine that this, this widow comes up and, and she's nervous. As she looks in her hand, she sees all of these Pharisees dropping these obscene amounts of money at the sanctuary, throwing it at the sanctuary, at the temple. And she looks down and she just has two mites. Hesitantly wanting to approach or, or not, she's unsure But her love for her master propels her to come forward. In fact, scholars say that this story probably took place at the end of the day. This was not in the morning or the afternoon, but late evening, or excuse me, late afternoon, early evening. So this woman had worked all day long. She had tried to scrounge for cans, anything, to make a few dollars. And instead of spending it on herself, She comes and says, I can't help but give this. As Desire of Ages says, this widow believed the service of the temple to be of God's appointment, and she was anxious to do her utmost to sustain it. She believed that the church of God is where things happen. And she said, you know what, I want to support that. You know, I believe that two things determine the value of a gift. The first is the spirit in which it is given. Can you imagine me having a gift for my wife, and I say, oh, fine, here, take it. Would that mean anything at all? Of course not. Only out of, hey, I can't help but give this to you. The first thing that determines the value of a gift is the spirit in which it is given. A gift given with a grudge or for the sake of display loses half of its value. The only real gift is that which comes out of the outflow of the loving heart. That which is given because the giver can't help but give it. Second thing that determines the value of a gift, not only the spirit in which it is given, but also the sacrifice in which it involves. That which is a mere trifle to one man may be a vast sum to the other. The gifts of these rich in this story flung at the temple didn't cost them much. Yeah, I can easily afford that. But those two mites cost this woman everything they had. And notice this, friends, that those that came in just, well, I'll give a little. And in their minds, it's a lot. But because their hearts were not in the right place. Notice this, that no doubt they calculated how much they could afford. They gave having nicely calculated how much they could afford, but the widow gave with reckless generosity until she could give no more. Friends, giving does not begin to be real giving till it hurts. Our gift shows our love only when we have had to do without it. As I think about this story, I realize that maybe I don't understand sacrifice. Well, Lord, I'll I'll, I'll give up this, but as long as it doesn't interfere with that. We check to make sure that the bills that we pull out of our pocket is not the 
$20 bill, but just the 10. We want to make sure, well, it's not the 50 that I give, but the 20. As long as that church event doesn't fall on this specific night. Sabbath afternoon outreach isn't an option because that's when I take my nap. In the name of safety, we won't stop and help the people on the side of the road who need our assistance. We won't come out every night to the evangelistic series because it's too much of a time commitment. And I believe that each of us could look at our own life and say, Lord, maybe I'm not sacrificing enough. Maybe I'm not giving enough. But you know what? At the end of the day, every sacrifice that we can make, everything that we can do for God, whether it's sacrificing our time or our talent or our energy, at the end of the day, it's not really a sacrifice. Notice what David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, had to say. He gave this talk to a group of university students. He says, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. He says, can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply acknowledging a great debt we owe to our God? Isn't that powerful? David Livingston spent his entire life sacrificing all prestige, money, wealth back in England so that he could give his life to the gospel. He says, That's not a sacrifice. That's just acknowledging a debt that I owe to God, which we can never repay. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny? Is that really a sacrifice, he says? He says it is emphatically no sacrifice. And I love these words. Rather, it is a what, everyone? A privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, foregoing the common conveniences of this life. These may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But notice this, let this only be for a moment, because all these are nothing compared with the glory which shall later be revealed in and through us. Amen? Man, the little bit that we have to give up, the one night that we have to give up, the little bit of money that we, it's nothing compared to the glory that we'll receive. And I have to read to you his last sentence or two. He says, I never made a sacrifice. Of this, we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which Christ made who left his Father's throne on high to give himself for us. Friends, we could try to understand sacrificing from a human perspective. We could try to look at more stories in the Bible of human beings that sacrificed, but they all pale in comparison to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And my friends, only may that sacrifice of love, only can that sacrifice of love motivate us to do anything. It amazes me that the God of the entire universe Jesus came to this planet and he was willing to completely give up eternity and his father's love forever. Sometimes I, I, I think, especially growing up, I was like, hey, Jesus died on a cross. He's Jesus. He knows everything. He knows that he's going to rise again. Not a big deal. Why is that a sacrifice? Yeah, I'll die if I know three days later I'm going to wake up again. But my friends, that is not the case. Jesus 
in, in that moment when all that sin was upon his shoulders, could not see through the portals of the tomb. He did not know that he would come out the other side alive. And he was willing to go into that tomb with the knowledge that he would never come out again forever. I think of Moses. Moses, who was willing to say, God, take my life. May I not see the promised land. May I not spend eternity with you as long as all these sinful people can spend it with you. That strikes at my heart, my friends. Could I say, Lord, I will give up eternity so that that person can spend it with you. God, I will give up my salvation so that my family member can be there. Father, I am willing to go where you want me to go. And my friends, the reason that we title the sermon A Surrendered Sacrifice is because the only real true sacrifice is when we surrender our hearts to Jesus. We can try it. I'm going to give more. I'm going to sacrifice more. But it's worthless if we don't have our hearts surrendered to Him. And you know, this morning, as we spend time thinking about the death of Jesus, thinking about that sacrifice and what He gave up, I want us to dwell on that thought that Jesus was willing to give up it all for you and me. I'll conclude this morning with a true story of a young girl named Helen. One day, Helen and her younger brother, Brandon, went to the mall to do a little shopping with their dad. As they drove up, they spotted a large 18-wheeler parked with a big sign that says, Petting Zoo Inside. The kids jumped up in a rush and said, Daddy, Daddy, can we please go? Sure, I said, flipping them both a quarter before walking into Sears. They bolted away and I felt time, I felt free to take my time looking for my table saw. A petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals running around of all kinds. Kids pay their money, stay in that enclosure with the animals until their mom and dad come and pick them up. A few minutes later, as this dad is shopping, he turns around and notices that his daughter Helen is walking along behind him. He was surprised and said, Helen, do you prefer the hardware department to the petting zoo? Why are you here? Well, he notices that something in her eye is wrong and he bends down and she looks up at me in his words with those giant brown eyes and said, well, daddy, it cost 50 cents to enter the petting zoo, so I gave Brandon my quarter. And then she said the most beautiful thing that I've ever heard. She repeated the family motto, And the father writes, our family motto is love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves animals more than my daughter, Helen. No one cares about animals more than my daughter, Helen. But she had watched over the years how time and time again in our family, we had given up something here. You can take mine. Here, you can take my spot 
always with the words, love is action. And now, at a young age, Helen had incorporated love is action into her lifestyle. And then the father writes, well, what do you think I did? Maybe not what you think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo, and we stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood at the edge of the fence with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket, but I never offered it to Helen and she never asked because she knew the family motto, love is action. Love pays a price. Love costs us something. Love is expensive. Love is for you and not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. And Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and she knew that she had to taste sacrifice. Friends, have you tasted sacrifice? Have I tasted sacrifice? And I want to encourage us to not think about the sacrifice that we have tasted, but think about the sacrifice that Jesus tasted. Because friends, he gave up. He gave up his quarter, and it was a whole lot more than that. It was a whole lot more expensive than that. So that you and I could be in the petting zoo. So that you and I could live eternity with him. And this morning, as we spend time dwelling on the cross, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be lifted upward, is my prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, we're about to continue with our communion service. Father, we're about to sacrifice and maybe sacrifice some embarrassment or maybe some time and go into the fellowship hall and and wash each other's feet. Doing what You did. And then, Father, we'll come back here, partake of these emblems representing Your body and blood. And Father, I pray that You would please remove the distracting thoughts in our hearts and minds. I pray that we would focus on what you did. That we would use this time to repent, Lord, of our sins. That we would use this time, Lord, to ask forgiveness of our brother or sister in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you that love cost you everything. In your name, amen.